3: time to get outside this is ksl outdoors brought to you by tracks power sports rentals two hours of stories and information on hunting fishing and high adventure ksl outdoors with tim hughes on ksl news radio 102.7 fm and 1160 am welcome back hour number two in the final one as always for another week of ksl outdoors radio glad you could be a part of it this morning Boy, the uh, snow over the past couple of days, and the cold temperatures have uh, <laughs> given everybody a little bit of a shock, I think. But we sort of anticipated that's what was going to take place with the long warm uh, transition from summer to uh, what was what there was anyway of uh, fall weather. Mike Navadowski, old well, Navi, is still with us for uh, this hour. Gonna have to bundle up for the Utes game this afternoon, eh?
4: Oh, absolutely. I, I hope it's worse than it feels right now because I want it to be bad. That's Arizona showing up, you know.
3: <laughs> I actually put a picture of the stadium. Uh, I I guess it was taken Wednesday of this last week uh, of all of the snow filling all of the seats. And I said, I hope those boys from Arizona are ready to play like real men out here. They don't like this stuff. Well, allegedly. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, coming up in this hour, speaking of the cold weather, We're going to do some road tripping with Bob and Mark, and they're talking about things that you should always have in your vehicle uh, if you're going to head out in freezing temps, just in case something goes awry. Name one thing you have in your car, Navi, when you go out uh, for winter fun, whether that's uh, doing something outdoors, camping, whatever.
4: I can tell you lots. Uh, First thing, I have a candle. Second thing, I have a jar of peanut butter. Also, I have blankets and water.
3: Yeah, all on this list, as a matter of fact. It's a lengthy one from uh, Mark. Mark Wade sent me one uh, that we'll uh, share with you coming up in a few minutes. And then uh, looking forward to talking with Amber Palmer from Bryan Head Resort. They actually, as you listen to this uh, interview, they actually opened up their lifts yesterday, Friday, at uh, Bryan Head. And not only the first one in the state, it might be the first one in the country that has their lifts running this week. <laughs>
4: like Colorado hates when that happens. But, yeah, my boy Finn's already been skiing three, three times. In fact, he's there right now.
3: Hiking up and then skiing down, I'm guessing?
4: Yeah, Alta. That's yeah. Their, you know, sometimes they do the boneyard, but mostly they do Alta when
3: they're hiking. Yeah. Uh, all right, so there's some to be had out there, whether you want to do the hiking or whether you want to jump the lifts at uh, Brianhead, They really got uh, pasted good with that last storm, that passed through. Let's start the hour, however, by get, bringing in our uh, big game coordinator for the Division of Wildlife Resources. Dax Mangus is with us. Dax, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Tim. Great to have you, uh, and we wanted to talk for a few minutes about n- new proposed management plans for elk hunting in Utah. I'm not going to share these numbers, but I hope you will, on how the um, demand for elk hunting in Utah has grown. My goodness, I had no idea, just in terms of how quickly permits sell out.
0: Yeah, yeah. so we have a statewide management plan that kind of guides how, how we manage elk for a period of time. The last plan we, we revised in 2015, and at that point in time when our general season bull up tags went on sale, they sold out You know, 70 to 80 days after they went on sale. It was two and a half months before they sold out. But starting in 2020, and, and again in 2021, 2022, they sell out in just a matter of hours. This last year they sold out in five or six hours. Mm. So there's just... It's gone from two and a half months to five hours, so just tons of demand for folks that want to get out and and enjoy elk hunting in Utah.
3: Yeah, Navi, I don't know uh, if you followed the pictures from our buddy Paul Phillips up there at uh, Strawberry, but he and his family have guided people on elk hunts for many years, and I I am always astounded at the size of some of these elk that are, are here in Utah.
4: Yeah, people don't know how large an elk is, and I think that's the reason why the interest is so high. Elk meat is wonderful, not to, not to criticize deer, but it's a different animal, and it's a, a large animal. I don't think people really know till they come up next to one how large an elk really is.
3: Yeah. Are these the heydays, Dax, of uh, elk hunting in Utah?
0: You know, we, we, have, a, we have over 80,000 elk in the state. Um, populations are stable. Our elk are healthy. They're doing well. Uh, the drought we've had in these dry these dry years the last few years have impacted our populations a little bit in a few of our drier units, some of the southern parts of the state. But, no, the, 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 the elk are there. They're, they're healthy. They're doing well. And we're just trying to find good ways to, to make them available to all the folks that want to enjoy them. Elk are kind of the pinnacle of big game hunting. It's just it's they're a really dynamic, exciting species.
3: I had somebody ask me the other day, uh, and, look, When it comes to hunting, and you know this better than anybody, no matter what decision you make, you're going to find somebody who's happy, somebody who's not. But somebody was asking me the other day uh, who these people are that actually sit on the committee. I understand there's 19 of them. What are some of their backgrounds? Are they all hunters?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So when we revise one of these management plans, we get a big group of folks together, and we try to get kind of diverse uh, representation from a lot of different constituencies. You mentioned Paul Phillips, who, who guides and outfits there at Strawberry. You know, Paul was actually one of the representatives on our committee. We tried to get the perspective from folks in kind of that guiding and outfitting community. We had sportsmen there, we had the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, you know, our big federal land management agencies. Uh, we had folks from the agricultural constituency, ranchers, farmers, and and kind of everything in between, or sportsmen's groups, like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, we tried to Get, uh get a little bit of perspective and some input from a lot of different groups because there's a lot of stakeholders when it comes to how, how we manage elk.
3: Yeah, a- everybody wants to talk about, you know, population objectives in the state, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other things you're trying to figure out.
0: Yeah, you know, the, a big, you know, charismatic species like elk, there's a lot of demand for hunting. Um, But there's also sometimes conflicts that come up on private lands. If if you're, you know, trying to grow corn as a farmer and a bunch of elk move into your cornfield, they could do a lot of damage to your crops. So uh, the way we hunt elk can change how they move across the landscape and where they hang out. So there's a lot of different things we're taking into consideration to, you know, use the resource the best way, the, the most responsible, sustainable way, and also try to minimize conflicts where those might occur. Uh, there's a lot of different things to try to balance
3: everything we're going to talk about here is proposed at this point correct
0: yes yep so we're proposing a new a new statewide elk management plan that would go for 10 years so from 2023 through 2032 uh, with a mid-plan review after five years
3: one of those is six additional general season hunting units Uh, where would you put those
0: Yeah, so that was in response to just that overwhelming increase in demand for for general season elk hunting opportunity. So we're taking some of the units that have been managed as limited entry units or managed as primitive weapon hunts units uh, on a draw basis, and we're recommending uh, converting those into the the general season any bull designation. The Poncagant unit down in southern Utah, which is really famous for deer, but it does have an elk population there, but the elk population is maybe not, not quite as strong as the deer population. Uh, the Nine Mile Anthro unit out in northeastern Utah, um, a couple portions of the Nebo, not the whole Nebo unit, but a couple portions, one near Moroni called Moroni Hills, another one kind of at the south end of the, Nebi, uh, the Nebo unit near Levan called uh, the Valley Mountains. Um, and then some West Desert, we're, we're recommending the Deep Creek Mountains, the Ochre Stansbury Mountains, the kind of this uh, bigger Deep Creek unit. Uh, we're recommending all of those be converted to uh, general season, any bull units.
3: Obviously, we're not going to get to all of these today, and people can go to the website to find out, you know, some of the specifics. You're also talking about a cap on any bull permits.
0: Yeah, we currently have a cap of 17,500. What we're proposing, it's a pretty big change. We're proposing instead of one rifle season with 17,500 permits available, we're proposing two rifle seasons. And during that first rifle season, uh, having a cap of 15,000, and then during the second rifle season, no cap, so unlimited. Uh, we recognize that'll probably be a pretty hard hunt. A lot of the elk will have been pushed around and, and kind of be hiding out, hanging out in places that, are, that they're hard to get to during that second season. But if there's folks that just want to be able to count on that traditional family hunt, that they know they can put it on their calendar and do it year after year, we want that opportunity to be available. Although we recognize it'll probably be a pretty challenging hunt, pretty difficult.
3: Yeah. Uh, The one thing I also want to get in here, because I have heard some of the same feedback from hunters, and we get emails and texts and and tweets and things about this, is uh, some way of addressing the continued point creep in the limited entry system how are you going to go about that?
0: Yeah, so that, that's another component of this. You know, we saw this huge spike in demand for general season hunting, but we just continue year after year to see this increase in demand for our limited entry elk hunting opportunities. Um, and so the the number of points it takes to draw the, a lot of these units just continues to increase a little bit more every single year. So one of the proposals we're making in this new plan is to lower the age objectives for a few of our limited entry units. We, we manage for an average age of harvested bulls. Um, so hunters that are successful in harvested bulls send in a couple of the teeth to a lab, and we get an age on those animals. And we use that age to increase permits or decrease permits, depending on where that age comes in uh, against our objective. We're recommending lowering the objectives by a year on our top-end units and by a half of a year on our on our mid-tier units, and we made that recommendation after looking at some really big data sets, looking at average Boone and Crockett score of elk uh, compared to their age, and and the data set this is thousands of animals from Montana to to Arizona, New Mexico, all across the West, and the average bull elk. Will score about 320 inches on the Boone and Crockett scale, and they reach that by six or seven years of age. Hmm. And so, so we had an age objective that was seven and a half to eight, and we realized, you know, we're we're kind of squandering the resource by managing for an age that's above where these bulls are going to max out on on antler size. So that's why we made those adjustments to the age objectives. To give a little more opportunity, but folks will still be chasing great bulls, bulls that have you know reached their potential for for large antler size. Um, but we'll we'll be able to give just a little more opportunity based on on all that data that we looked at and, and the analysis. And this is a huge part of what we did as an elk committee was looking at scouring data from Utah and all around the West and looking at all the information that was available so we can do the best we can to manage the resource.
3: Yeah, there's a ton of this science, but there's also a ton of it that is uh, best educated guess, <laughs> especially if you're looking 10 years down the road, and uh, it's not an easy task at all. What would you suggest to listeners, hunters out there that want to have a say in all this?
0: Yeah, the, the rack cycle, so our regional advisory councils are our racks. Those meetings start this next week. If you get on our webpage, the division webpage, page, wildlife.utah.gov, um, if you scroll down, I think it's like the second or third item on the web page. It says, you know, we're looking for your feedback on the elk plan proposals. Click on that. It will show you when the meetings are. You can read the plan in its entirety, watch a presentation that goes through a lot more of the details. Um, and then you can provide feedback uh, right there through the website, or if you want, you can attend the meetings in person and, and, uh, and let us know how you feel and, and what you think.
3: All good stuff. Dax Mangus, thanks for what you do day in and day out as our big gang coordinator.
0: Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
3: We'll go road tripping in just a minute with the boys, so don't go away.
2: Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten,
3: What do you say we do a little road trip in here? But if you're coming along, you better bundle up. Got some cold weather and some snow out there. On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. We are road tripping with Bob and Mark. That's uh, Bob Grove, Mark Wade, both joining me now uh, for this segment of the program, guys. It's very timely, and Bob, you said a minute ago uh, we kind of do this annually with a little refresher course, which I think we all need from time to time.
5: Yeah, I mean, it seems like when we get the first snow, the first couple of snow storms through Salt Lake, everybody has forgotten how to drive in snow. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the busiest days of the year for tow trucks.
3: Especially in L.A. Verkin. A lot of those people never have driven in snow, probably, in their entire (laughs) life.
5: No, not much snow here.
3: Yeah. Uh, We're certainly getting a lot of it. Uh, uh, Mark, you said you got a little bit in Mona, right?
1: Yeah, we, we don't get as much as you're, you apparently have. We're right below Mount Nebo, and I think all the storm blows around the mountain, so it doesn't drop much here often.
3: What we thought we'd do today is just talk about some of the, the uh, things you should have in your trunk. And I've, I've got to admit, I, this is a list that's longer than I anticipated, but I looked at almost all these things that are in my garage, sitting in various places, taking up space on a shelf when they could be quietly sitting in the trunk of my car just in case something bad comes along or I get stuck somewhere. So let's walk through some of these things. We're not going to get them all in, Mark, but uh, where do you start? I guess it's with warm clothes.
1: You know, warm clothes is, is an obvious one. You, an extra jacket's not a bad thing to have in your your vehicle. Extra gloves, a beanie hat, we, we think those are all good things. If you've got an extra pair of shoes that you can just – put down you know something that's better for winter weather that's not a bad thing and then we like uh, just warm blankets throw a couple blankets into your be into your trunk or in the back seat of your car
3: yeah and it's one thing if you're thinking about uh, bob riding on i15 or you know i80 one of those this time of year it's another if you're going to be in the back country exploring places if you break down out there you better have more than just warm clothes
5: yeah, you know that's that's what we're thinking of on these road trips. If you're going in away from uh, population densities, because of course if you're in the city and that there's, you're going to be seen and helped. But it's on these road trips. Uh, you know, my motivation behind it is watching episodes of
3: I Survived of guys
5: who have been <laughs> stuck out there for days. You know, and they didn't have everything they needed. So I, thought, I thought you're say, sure. I thought you were going
3: to say I thought you're going to say naked and afraid, and that's an image I don't nah, even want to nah, think about. Nah, nah. Yeah. Yeah,
5: <laughs> well, that would be even worse. That's where warm clothes <laughs> comes in handy. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's these road trips. If you get caught, if you slide off the road, you're up in the mountains or you're out in the open road, you know, think of I-80 across Wyoming, <laughs> you yeah. know, and maybe getting stuck somewhere out in that area. Well, that, that you know, you need to have these things. I usually keep all this in my car anyway, uh, but some of the folks out there may need to get a bigger trunk for some of the items we have on the list. But, you know, obviously... One of the things that we feel is very important are to have a cell phone with an extra battery, to have extra batteries. You know, you can buy these extra batteries that will help charge your phone and keep them lasting because that's going to be an important part of survival.
3: Chains, rope, toe strap, all of those things, tire chains, something that are sort of a lost art these days. Uh, Everybody used to have them in the past. I don't know about now. But even battery-powered radios, Mark, is a good idea.
1: We, we think that's a great idea. You've got those kind that you can just wind up in case your batteries do go dead. Those are handy. Those little emergency radios are a good thing. You know, just, just the kind of thing that would help you in that kind of situation to uh, maybe even just pass some time. But think about the other things you're going to need, like water. Uh, it's always good to have a gallon of water in the back in your trunk of your car, I suggest. And then how about some snacks? Uh, especially in the wintertime you're not going to have the heat damaging snacks so it's easy to store some uh, items that you could snack on in case you have some trouble
3: yeah and, and some of the other things are give, uh, given given to like uh, uh, road flare something like that emergency flares or a distress flag something that you could put on the top of the car for somebody to see if you're down in an area where that you know it may be tough from a higher road or something uh, but what's the kitty litter for somebody want to explain that one to me
5: well, you know, if you need traction, you can put kitty litter under the tires and get uh, traction. That's what it's for.
3: That's a good idea. Or in
5: case you have a, in case you have your cat with you, you may need it for that.
3: Yeah, I have uh, somebody actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> the dog <laughs> and the cat are in the back. Um, compressed air with a sealant. Somebody actually, it might even have been Russ, gave me one of these for my motorcycle. Uh, but I hadn't thought about it for a car just because I thought it would take so much more pressure to pump up a car tire. But maybe they've got that figured out, Mark.
1: You know, I think one can is going to at least fill up one tire for you. And it's going to help seal uh, a puncture, hopefully. And then it's going to fill it up with uh, with at least enough air to run on for a while. And maybe you can get out of where you're at, uh, the situation you're in, and, and travel a distance to where you can get you know, more air and and Uh, That brings to mind one other thing that I would throw out. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but if you do get in a place where you get stuck, then the best thing to do oftentimes is to lower the air pressure in your tires where you can actually broaden the base of those tires, and it will help you to get unstuck. And I don't know. I've been in some bad situations where that's saved me some trouble.
3: Yeah, and it's counterintuitive, but uh, you bring up a good point. I had the opportunity when I was over in uh, the Middle East, actually, to t- to take a sand buggy ride out in the middle of one of the biggest deserts on the planet. And it's the first thing they do is stop and let half the air out of those tires. And that's how they get there, drifting through all of that shifting sand, which is a l- little scary, but uh, a memory I'll carry with me forever. Bob, the other thing, and uh, we're out of time here, but the other thing is most of this stuff you can get as a kit and it's available all over the place pretty widely.
5: Yeah, there are there are some kits out there. I have one. Uh, I don't know, if it's still around called uh, Getaway Emergency Roadside Kits of some sort. I haven't. I used to have them on the website, but I I keep all this in a plastic bin in my car. But the m- number one most important thing, yeah, matches.
3: Ah, yeah. Gotta have
5: matches because the secret to survival, big bonfires.
3: Yeah. Yep. And if you can't find dry timber, I mean, we've had stories of guys on snowmobiles that were stuck for a couple of days, actually lit the seat of their snowmobile on fire, and that's how they kept warm. Um, yep. you know, you, you'd you wait to do that last thing instead of first thing, but uh, it's actually saved some lives. All right, guys, uh, anybody wants information, of course, this is always great stuff. You can find so much more and actually feel like you got away. It's Road tripping with BobandMark.com. Bob, Mark, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Tim. Actually, Bob, you're going to hang out because we're going to talk to uh, Brian Head next. They've opened up their lifts, if you can join me. Absolutely. We'll uh, do that, so stay with us. Amber Palmer joins us next.